Uh, thank you very much, uh, and welcome this morning. It is a Saturday morning in Las Vegas, and I really appreciate each of you for being here today. I'm hoping that we can enlighten you on understanding and managing as effectively as possible myofascial pain and fibromyalgia, which are the number one conditions that drive chronic pain. And I want to make sure that you understand the concepts behind transformative care. Uh, as it applies, the goal, of course, is transforming the patient from pain and illness to health and well-being and being pain-free. It's not an easy task, as you probably realize. Uh, so the components, just to get started right off the bat, is that you integrate self-management training with treatment. And to facilitate that, there's a lot of technology solutions, another T, with a team. And we use a telehealth coaching team to do that. And so let me kind of go through uh, myofascial pain. And then Dr. Lipton is going to talk more about fibromyalgia. And then this afternoon, we're going to really get into the, the details of that transformative care model. Can everybody hear me in the back all right? We're good? All right. Disclosures. Uh, I worked with health, the University of Minnesota Health Partners, Minnesota Head and Pain Clinic, my private practice, and the International Myopain Pain Society. I'm a consultant for a variety of different, uh, the NIDCR, Seven Realm Solutions, uh, Minnesota Head and Neck. Uh, and I'm really focused on the whole concept of preventing chronic pain and addiction. That's the critical thing that we need to do. And so the learning objectives is review the impact of chronic muscle pain, define myofascial pain, which is regional, compared to fibromyalgia, which is widespread. But there's a lot of overlap between the two, as uh, Dr. Lipton will talk about. Then this afternoon, we'll talk about the whole concept of both risk factors, which drive chronic pain, and protective factors, which prevent chronic pain, and the balance between those two, which is really critical to understand. And then we'll talk about how to integrate health coaching and self-care strategies into fibromyalgia and into your routine care and how to get reimbursed for that as far as the health plans. So we all know that chronic pain is the big elephant in the room. And uh, we need to really address that. It is the Number one reason people seek care. A Mayo Clinic study found that about 67% of their clinics, outpatient clinics, had pain as the number one chief complaint. In addition, it's important to recognize the fact that muscle tissue is the largest tissue in the body. It's highly innervated with an extensive nociception network in order to teach you, each patient, what's happening with your body. And there are a ton of acute muscle strain is very common. And lastly, there are a ton of person, personal patient-centered risk factors that drive myofascial pain. And frankly, I am sure you are aware of them personally of most of those risk factors because we all have myofascial pain to some extent. It's just that we usually have it just periodically. We learn from it and it doesn't persist. When there's a combination of risk factors, that's what drives more chronic myofascial pain. And so myofascial pain is the most common 
pain disorder that we have. We need to understand this inside and out if we are to really successfully manage our patients with pain conditions. So a variety of different studies that show uh, the prevalence in a pain population, in one study by Razumov, 85% of the patients had a primary diagnosis of myofascial pain, 55% in the university pain clinic, and 65% within a rehabilitation clinic. It is very common. In the general population, you can see that 13% just had shoulder myofascial pain in the general population. Very common. Trigger points right up here. Neck pain, the same. Jaw pain, temple headaches, back pain, similar. Hip pain. Uh, and 30% of all patients with pain in internal medicine practice had myofascial pain of all the patients that they saw and 19% in a masticatory myofascial. And there's a lot of other studies out there that are on this. Very common problem. And unfortunately, it is often uh, overlooked, misdiagnosed. And so, for instance, in this study by Lipton found that 48% were, or were diagnosed, whereas 52% were left undiagnosed. So we miss it all the time. Frankly, it's because we don't examine the patients for trigger points, and it takes two seconds to do that, but we've got to do it. We have to touch the patients. We have to look where their regional pain trigger points are, where are they referring pain, and it doesn't take uh, much effort to do that, but it is helpful to the patient because it validates their experience of pain. Yes, they do have pain. So it's misdiagnosed frequently, as many other conditions, as suspected, Mr. Harding here is possessed by demons causing their pains. And so we need to be realize that this is really the, the big driver of most chronic pain that we have. And so, you know, I am a dental professional, but I'm a pain specialist, anesthesiologist, uh, but I primarily focus on head, neck, and jaw pain. This is, uh, you're probably not familiar with this, but it's a, it's a torturous x-ray that was presented to me by a patient who had root canals on every tooth for pain in the teeth, which turned out to be referred pain from the myofascial structures of the face and the jaw. None of this solved any of her pain. She just kept going after one after root canal, and it's all cash. It's all unfortunate. Uh, and so these are the types of things of over-treatment that occurs routinely with patients with myofascial pain because we don't examine, we don't identify the trigger points and solve, solve that problem. So also uh, patients are often under-treated. I woke up one day and this was a new, this was on the front page, man abducts a dentist and then kills himself. Very unfortunate situation where he had dental care done, strained the jaw muscles, developed myofascial pain in the masseter and the temporalis, persistent pain continued, went back to the dentist, physicians and other doctors in the area couldn't tolerate the pain and realized, blamed it on the dentist, went to the dentist, took all the patients, all the staff, the doctor hostage, and they eventually killed himself. Very sad situation, but you know, nonetheless, if the dentist did simply examine the patient for myofascial trigger points and manage those appropriately, and it's not hard to manage it, and we'll get over that this afternoon, uh, it would have prevented this tragedy from occurring. 
So, and it's often unsuccessfully treated. So longitudinal studies of chronic pain show that most people who have pain at one month after onset still have pain five years later despite treatments. We need to know how to manage these patients. And remember, there's an 80-20 rule. 80% of a person's success is based on what they do, not what we do as, as the treating doctor. We can facilitate, we can train, we can do treatments like myofascial release that work very well for it, but the patient still has to reduce those risk factors that are driving chronic pain. Very frustrating for most patients, as you can see for this uh, picture. So myofascial pain is, is a simple concept, really. Its prevalence is high, it's easy to identify. There are clear mechanisms, peripheral sensitization and some central sensitization, particularly with fibromyalgia. Consistent, changeable causes that you can alter. Treatments work well, training can be easy, and transformative care is greatly appreciated by patients. And I'll repeat this, this statement that I say to all my patients. I am happy to treat you, but it's more effective if we also train you to reduce the causes of your pain. Are you interested? A very simple question. 99% of the patients say, yes, I'm interested. 1% say, no, I just want the drug. <laughs> but everybody wants to know what's causing their symptoms over time and what they can do to manage it. Patients are very appreciative of that. So definition of myofascial pain. It's a regional pain due to localized tender nodules in a taut band of muscle, tendon or fascia, that when palpated re reproduces the pain in local and distant referral sites. So here's an example of the temporalis. We see this all the time with tension type headaches. Trigger point in the anterior temporalis, right, oops, excuse me, right at the hairline. You can find it on yourself if you go up to your temple and go to that hairline and massage front back, you'll find that taut band. You know, you can go across this way if you're having a headache behind the eye or across the forehead or even referred pain down to the teeth, and then of course right here in the temples, you have myofascial pain. So it's very, very common problem. Characteristics then include a trigger point, which is a tender nodule, referred pain, regional and distant, and you can see here in the upper trapezius how it refers pain, and these are from Travell and Simon's classic textbook on myofascial pain. Uh, which I recommend getting. Uh, referred pain, <clears throat> twitch response. So in long muscles, you can actually palpate the muscle and, and do an EMG and, and see hyperactivity within the electrical EMG needle activity. And motor dysfunction, weakness, limited pain range of motion, so about 10 to 20% limited. And when you stretch the muscle to its full range of motion, there's some tightness and, and pain associated with that. And sometimes there are autonomic symptoms like hyperemia, altered sensation, imbalance, particularly with the sternocleidomastoid right here, blurred vision with the temporalis muscle right here, and interestingly enough, tinnitus with the masseter. So I had this friend uh, who's actually visiting me. We're going up to Zion Park uh, tomorrow, and uh, he says, I've, for the last two, three years, I've had these ringing in my ears, and it's just driving me nuts. And you know, there's a lot of things that can cause tinnitus or ringing in the ears. One of them is myofascial trigger points with the masseter muscle. 
So I examined him for that. He had classic limited range of motion in the jaw. And so I just, basically, this was a passing conversation that I had with him. So he was up visiting, and I just said, okay, you know, just try this. Some stretching, don't clench your teeth, keep your tongue up and teeth apart. Some basic things, passing conversation. So the last time I talked to him, <clears throat> a couple months later, he said, you know, it was incredible. After years of ringing my ears, I got rid of that with the things that you suggested just in a passing conversation. He says, why don't doctors know this? He's went to a variety of ENT doctors. I said, I don't know, but I'm glad you're better. The ringing is gone, uh, and he was pretty impressed. So sometimes you have these autonomic symptoms also. So here's temple pain, as I mentioned before. Here's a trigger point in the leg area, regional knee pain. Look at that trigger point right here that refers pain to the medial aspect of the knee. Um, and you can get trigger points that radiate also from, you know, the uh, femoral muscles here that radiate down also. Um, and hip, hip pain. So, of course, underlying a lot of myofascial pain, there may be joint problems. And we do have to recognize the fact that the joint may be arthralgic, some tendonitis associated with it, degenerative changes, disc disorders, no matter where it is in the spine or the jaw or the, the hip. But interestingly enough, if you don't identify the myofascial component, what I have found in managing my patients with joint problems, if you first take care of the muscle problem, the joint problem is so much more minimal. And in fact, in many cases, may not cause pain at all. Um, and so... So you have to look for these trigger points right here, and they're pretty classic. Uh, you know, it takes, two, again, two seconds to identify. You just have to know where the patterns of trigger points are. So there are other muscle disorders that certainly can contribute to some discomfort or pain. Myositis, where the whole muscle is tender and inflamed, usually related to some kind of localized infection. Contracture, which is a fibrotic contraction of a muscle over time, usually secondary to an injury that hasn't been rehabbed. And we see this in all the muscles when you tear, tear it. And then neoplasias, sometimes muscle uh, tumors, and then, of course, fibromyalgia is more widespread, and there's a lot of overlap between that, and Dr. Lipton will talk about that. And, of course, we also have myospasm, which is acute muscle uh, uh, spasm or limited range of motion that is very painful, um, and then you, but you do have to work out, and, or that will turn into myofascial pain over time. So, so mechanism. So, what is driving myofascial pain? I mean, what's the underlying basic science mechanisms associated with it? Well, let me just kind of review that briefly. Um, so. You have, with all muscles, you have this type, red type 1 muscle fiber type, which is for postural. Maintaining your postural tension over time is usually based on these type 1 muscle fiber types. And then white type 2 fibers are for strength, building those, uh, or using that muscle for strength or lifting or whatever. Uh, so in every... Muscle has a type 1, type 2 fiber type distributed through all the skeletal muscles. So first you understand the muscles. 
Now, let me go into detail about the fiber type. One is they're red, they're slow twitch. They maintain postural, high endurance, slow twitch over time. It's primarily related to the metabolism is more oxidative phosphorylation with O2 ATP, increased vascularity and mitochondria. So you need a lot of oxygen, a lot of, a lot of nutrition to that tissue. And really a characteristic is like a marathon runner has more type one muscle fiber types or those people who sustained postural tension over time, desk jobs, <laughs> where you're on the computer all the time, you'll generate more muscle fiber types, one within a muscle. So muscle fiber type two is more focused on that fast twitch, large forces over brief periods, low endurance. They fatigue out very easily, fast twitch. And they use anaerobic glycologists with low oxygen, but high lactic acid production. So if you go into the weight room, you haven't worked out for a while, and you really push yourself, you're going to get lactic acid production, stiffness in the muscle, soreness the day after or later on that particular day. So a character is a sprinter. Now, muscle fiber types are chameleons. They go back and forth between muscle fiber type 1 and muscle fiber type 2. They can convert depending upon the demands. And so it's, a, it's an amazing structure to be able to do that. So if you have increased demand from high forces to short period of time, you go from type 1 to type 2. They convert. But if you have increased demand from postural strain for over a period of time, like in a desk job, they will convert from muscle fiber types 2 to type 1. So with repetitive strain, which is really what myofascial pain is to some extent, you convert from type, one, type 2 fast fibers to type 1 slow twitch. There's an increase in conversion due to repetitive postural strain. Then you develop, and this is based on a variety of different biopsies, studies, and analysis, you develop abnormal metabolic activity in the type 1 postural muscle fiber types. You have low oxygen ATP. The fuel is depleted. You have increased ragged type 1 fiber types, decreased type 2 strength fibers, and abnormal mitochondrial changes in these type 1 fiber types. So they convert, and then they keep trying to compensate for that sustained tension over time, and they can't do it. And they break down. They increase uh, a variety of byproducts which increase peripheral sensitization of those muscles, but it's usually localized in the area of the motor end plate where the trigger point is. So the musculoceptors then are in the particular area where the efferent motor end plate goes in. You have the muscle spindles, and so you have type 3 and type 4 musculoceptors, which increase resting activity. In other words, you have that spontaneous, continuous, dull, achy pain. And you have type 4 musculoceptors that have high threshold mechanoreceptors, which create this sensitization and increased tenderness within those areas of the muscle where the efferent nerves come in developing trigger points. So, so you get this peripheral sensitization, and I don't want to go into all the details uh, here necessarily, um, but the important thing is there is an energy crisis in the muscle there as a result of this repeated tension on the muscle that the muscle just can't compensate for. It's trying the best it can, but it can't do it. 
And sometimes the underlying joint problem help prevents some of the uh, you know, recovery from it. Um, but usually when somebody has repetitive strain, whether it's poor posture, tensing, forward head posture, you see all those 19-year-olds with their, their cell phones like this, it's a problem. They're going to all develop myofascial pain at trigger points back here in the cervical area, and you're going to have to take care of them. So you just have to tell them about balanced, relaxed posture, reducing repetitive strain. All these things we'll talk about this afternoon. So, so then you have a concept of wind-up, which is interesting. So I use this picture of a pitcher, you know, winding up to throw a fastball. So there's an increase in pain over time when a painful stimulus is delivered repeatedly above a critical, critical rate. So if that strain, repetitive strain, occurs, not only it increases that pain sensitivity, but then if it's repeated, the red is repeated, it goes up. And if it's repeated again, it goes up more. And so there's this wind-up that occurs that increases peripheral sensitization over time because the patient's not getting the message. Pain is a message. It's telling us we're doing something wrong and we need to correct that. And so if we don't get the message, we don't correct what is causing it, it just keeps telling, hitting us over the head over and over again and increases this wind-up process. And so then you also get an expanding pain pattern. So initially with trigger points, usually it's a very localized pain over the trigger point, like in the temporalis muscle, the tension type headache. But over time, as the stimulation pain receptors continue, the tissues let you know it by expanding the pain pattern. So it's like dropping a rock on the head. Okay, you're not getting the message here. We better do something more. And so they have a situation where you have a referred pain that not only occurs over the trigger point, but now across the temples, behind the eye, down in the teeth, or from the back point, it starts going down your back or goes to your hip area or the shoulder, starts going down your arm, and you get a trigger point right back here. Um, so first you get the tenderness, though. Then you get a localized pain. Then you evolve to a referred pain just to send the message to you, the patient, uh, that you need to do something about this. So the whole sensitization cycle, then, is summarized here, which is a good transition into fibromyalgia and central sensitization, which Dr. Lipton will talk about. So we have an acute muscle injury. You have peripheral factors, maybe an injury, whiplash injury, for example postural strain, some type of trauma, repeated strain over time. Or you may also have central factors already present. Of course, you're inactivity. You're not exercising. Muscles don't get adequate vascularity to take away the metabolic byproducts. Or you're anxious and you're tensing your muscles or depression. Increases central sensitization or sleep problems, variety of other conditions like that. And this causes... Uh, High muscle tone, low removal of pain allergens, the chemicals that cause sensitization. Then you get the sensitization of muscle nociceptors. There's a decreased inhibition of central input. So in other words, that, that wind-up is due to decreasing that inhibition of pain. So it, wind, so it just keeps telling you, you got pain, you got a problem in these muscles, you got to do something about it. And so then you have this convergence facilitation, increased pain and muscle strain, 
and you have central sensitization, wind-up expansion of the receptor field, referred pain, and hyperalgesia in those type 1 muscle fiber types. And so this cycle just continues over and over and over again, chronic. Like I had this 81-year-old gentleman who had 65 years of headaches and neck pain and jaw pain, and he been to every doctor you know, he had since he was 16. Went to all, took all these medications, nothing really helped. And so I was seeing his wife and his daughter, and he was sitting in the corner and came up to me afterwards. They were getting better. He says, maybe you can help me, and he told me the story. And so I said, sure, why not? You have to identify, we have to identify the factors that are driving your headaches and see if we can do something. And with that particular patient, he was very good about it. He was a former CEO or vice president of a large corporation in Minneapolis. Very compliant. And uh, changes headaches brought him down from daily to once every two or three weeks. That uh, was pretty amazing. And then he came in after a few months, and he was kind of angry. <laughs> I said, why are you angry? Your headaches are almost gone. You have control over them. I said, well, why didn't somebody tell me this 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 40 years ago? It's, we need to teach our patients what the pain is, what's, why is it there? What's the reason for that pain? And so uh, with that, I want to kind of transfer now to more of the central phenomena when you have widespread pain, and it's a very similar phenomenon. And I introduce Dr. Lipton. Thank you. Okay. All right. So I hate to be the presenter that does this, but do you guys want to like stand up and like move yeah. a little, like take care of your myofascial pain? <laughs> I just feel like it's good to move and stretch. Okay, but not too long because I have a lot to cover. So now sit down. <laughs> Oops, wrong way. Okay. So I'm Ginevra Lipton. I'm an internal medicine physician. I have an integrative uh, focused practice in Portland, Oregon, where I exclusively treat fibromyalgia. Yes, go Oregon. Um, I have no financial disclosures, but I do have a personal disclosure that I want to make. And I think that that will help you understand uh, why I might have a little bit of a different approach to treating fibromyalgia from what you've heard in other, in other lectures. So, uh, I decided to specialize in fibromyalgia because I developed it myself in medical school. And uh, this was about 20 years ago. Don't want to age myself too much, but about 20 years ago. And I will say that uh, the treatment available to me was pitiful. I, I, you know, I saw lots of doctors. I, this was, I was at Tufts in Boston, so I saw lots of some of the most uh, renowned fibromyalgia specialists at the time. And the options were, you know, tricyclic antidepressants, you're probably depressed and you should exercise. I was like, well, yeah. And also I'm really stressed, I'm in med school. And I mean, of course, like I, all those things were true. But I didn't get better from anything that any doctor told me. I got better from what I figured out for myself. Part of that 80-20 rule there. What got me better and back to medical school was working on my muscle tissue, my myofascial pain. It was not addressing central sensitization. Now, I'm not arguing that central sensitization is not occurring in fibromyalgia, and I absolutely think that we need to treat it. We have more options now than we did 20 years ago, and they all are designed at treating central sensitization. And they do help a little, 
And I don't know if any of you were in Dr. Argov's lecture yesterday, but he described how, you know, the medications are, are mildly effective at, at best. And frankly, I think this is why treating fibromyalgia for most providers is such a frustrating and somewhat dissatisfying um, process. Because it's really hard to get people better if you're only addressing the central sensitization. And part of this is because that's really the end result of a chain reaction that begins much earlier. And it starts in our muscles. So if we are not addressing both what's happening in the muscle tissue itself, along with what's happening in the brain, you won't get very far. And so the transformative care component that I wanna talk about today, what I'm hoping you'll leave this lecture with, is an understanding that yes, addressing central sensitization is important. There are tools to do that. But, and I know that I'm contradicting what you might have heard in some other lectures, fibromyalgia is not exclusively a central phenomenon. If you say that central sensitization is fibromyalgia, that that's all it is, you are wrong. And I can tell you, you don't have to take my opinion, there's some science behind this, and honestly, if we listen to our patients, you'll know this as well. Because where do patients with fibromyalgia describe their pain? It's in their muscles. Their muscles are tender. And if you examine your fibromyalgia patient, their muscles are like rocks, and they are riddled with trigger points. So how can we say that it's exclusively a brain phenomenon? So I'm gonna try and present some evidence to change your mind maybe today and also give you some tools that you can use to help uh, treat and get better treatment outcomes with your fibromyalgia patients by addressing both the peripheral generators along with the central issues. And, you know, I'm being a little controversial, so I probably won't be invited back next year. So, you know, I gotta, gotta go big. Go big and then go home. <laughs> so this uh, study came out when I was in med school, and this really transformed our understanding of fibromyalgia, and this was one of the first neuroimaging studies to show that there was central pain amplification. And what they did is they took healthy people and people with fibromyalgia, put them in a functional MRI machine, and then they put their thumbs in vices, and they said, tell us when it hurts, and they started squeezing the thumb vise. And the patients with fibromyalgia, uh-oh, <laughs> wrong button. The patients with fibromyalgia took a lot less pressure for them to register a pain signal. So it took almost double that amount of pressure for people with, without fibromyalgia before they said, you know, that hurts. And they were able to see that the areas of the brain in fibromyalgia that were lighting up with this uh, pain stimulus were the same as in the healthy controls, except that there was additional areas of the brain being recruited. So absolutely, central pain amplification happens in fibromyalgia. These studies were key because for the first time, there was this concept now that fibromyalgia perhaps was real, and there was actually objective findings, and there was some maybe pharmaceutical targets that could work on the central pain amplification. So this really revolutionized things. And I will tell you, when I was first diagnosed with fibromyalgia, uh, I went back to medical school. I had to take a year-long leave of absence. And the bulk of my professors said helpful things to me like, fibromyalgia is not real. Okay, like, I, I don't know how that is at all a useful or constructive thing to say to somebody who is experiencing fibromyalgia in your body. 
So I learned very quickly that I needed to just not talk about fibromyalgia. And I didn't tell anybody in med school. I didn't tell anybody in my residency until on the very last day of my residency, I came out as having fibromyalgia in my grand rounds. And it was very dramatic. And then I started crying. <laughs> I was like, no, don't cry. Oh, I cried. But then afterwards, so many people came up to me and were like, oh, my aunt has fibromyalgia. My mom has fibromyalgia. My sister has fibromyalgia. I have fibromyalgia. Thank you so much for talking about it. So it really needs to not be the dirty little secret of medicine anymore. And um, I stand here before you as somebody that got better. I mean, I'm not perfect. I still have fibromyalgia. But I got better enough to go back to med school, finish my residency, and practice full time. So I will tell you that it can be done. And instilling hope in our patients is what's really important. And if you address both their muscles and the central sensitization, along with sleep improvement and other things that I don't have time to get into today, you can really get significant improvement. So treat, there are treatments available, central sensitization, treat it. So what are we missing? What's the blind spot in our medical understanding of, of fibromyalgia? Well, we've seen the central sensitization component, and now we've really moved from, you know, fibromyalgia is all in your head to fibromyalgia is all central sensitization. And okay, that, that is progress, I will give you that. And we do have some objective findings and see that it is actually, you know, real. But we're really missing something, and that is central sensitization has to have a trigger. Unless you have a central pain syndrome, like a stroke or brain injury that actually damages the brain, it's a peripheral generator that sends noxious continued stimulus to the dorsal horn that sets off that chain reaction that results in central pain amplification. So if we are exclusively with our blinders just looking at the brain and the central sensitization piece, but not saying, well, what triggered that in the first place? We're really missing something. And I don't know if any of you went to Dr. Glick's uh, good lectures, The Pain Pathways Made Simple, and he talks about you know, the importance of looking at the spear that's in the patient's foot and maybe like removing that. Um, that is fibromyalgia. Like you also need to look at what's generating and, and, and perpetuating this. And it is very much in the muscles, in the fascia surrounding the muscles, and sort of a widespread myofascial pain that is triggering and generating this central amplification. So you can give, you can really consistently induce central sensitization in these poor little lab rats that all have fibromyalgia, basically, because if you inject inflammatory chemicals into their muscles, you can induce central sensitization. If you damage their peripheral nerves, you induce central sensitization. You can't do it without that peripheral component. You can't do it just by aggravating the brain. So we're really missing something, I think, in our, in our understanding, and this blind spot is really important for us to address. So central sensitization, you see it in a lot of different almost every chronic pain condition. So it's been documented in lots of different um, endometriosis, chronic low back pain. There was a really interesting study looking at painful hip osteoarthritis, and they found that when people still had um, the pain generated from that joint, they displayed central sensitization, central pain amplification. Once they replaced the joint and there was no more pain, there's no more peripheral driver, the central sensitization went away. 
And so it's important to remember there has to be something driving that process. So one of my um, <clears throat> mentors, Dr. Rob Bennett, also agreed with, with me that central sensitization has to have an initial genesis and no susceptive stimuli from painful muscles are increasingly being recognized as important in fibromyalgia. So I want you to walk away today understanding that successful fibromyalgia treatment also addresses those peripheral pain generators. And I'm gonna go a little bit into each one of those and how you can address them this morning and then we'll talk a little bit more extensively about actually implementation this afternoon. So there's been some studies that have shown that if you address those peripheral pain generators in fibromyalgia, you can get both localized pain improvement and widespread pain improvement. So Dr. Stoud did a really interesting uh, study where he injected lidocaine into the muscle belly of the trapezius muscle in people with fibromyalgia, and interestingly, not in trigger points. It was just in the, just in the muscles. Just They picked a location in the center of the trapezius and injected lidocaine. It, it not only improved the pain locally where they had injected lidocaine, which makes sense, it also improved pain on the other side of the body, the contralateral side, it reduced wind-up, and it actually seemed to lower the overall peripheral pain. Another study looking at trigger points found that if you did trigger point injections in fibromyalgia, that also reduced the global pain sensitivity. So I like to think of fibromyalgia pain as really more of a chain reaction. And so you have to address all three of these components. Yes, address central sensitization, but also address myofascial trigger points and also address muscle tension. And I don't know how many of you have examined fibromyalgia patients in your practice, but they have phenomenally tense muscles. Like I can almost diagnose fibromyalgia by touching somebody's trapezius muscle because it feels like this. It's like a rock. And so I call it the trapezius of steel, which is not like buns of steel. It is not a good thing because they're so tight. The tension is phenomenal. And they've actually documented this in some different ways. They did a, uh, a really interesting study where they inserted pressure gauge needles, you know, the same thing you use in your tire to sense air pressure. They inserted that onto fibromyalgia muscles and compared it to healthy controls. And there was a lot more pressure inside the fibromyalgia muscle. So definitely some tension in there. And muscle tension, when it happens 24 hours a day, all the time, even while you're sleeping, results in tired, irritable, painful muscles that are super prone to generating myofascial trigger points. So they've also done some EMG studies and show increased EMG amplitude in fibromyalgia muscles. And this study was really interesting. It was an EMG study, and they said that uh, their results suggested that fibromyalgia muscles are not able to reach muscle relaxation. Even when you try, you can't do it because there's this amazing generation of muscle tension. And it really stems from the sympathetic hyperactivity. The fight or flight nervous system in fibromyalgia has gone haywire. And this, again, subject for another day, but in large part, if you can help people to calm down their fight or flight nervous system by activating their own relaxation response, then you can finally get some of this muscle tension to ease. And if you can ease that muscle tension, pain goes down. So 
How can you help your patients reduce their muscle tension? First of all, just talking about it. If you say to fibromyalgia patients, does it feel like your muscles are tensed all the time? I guarantee you 100% of the time they will say, oh my God, yes. And if I'm not thinking about it, like if I'm sitting in traffic and become aware of it, it's like So if you're like this all the time, how can you soften that? Well, you can do relaxation, mindfulness practices, uh, biofeedback, yoga, gentle stretching, exercise. I mean, we, we know all this, and we, and we talk about how important it is to teach patients how to do this. But I found if you tell them, not just to do it, but if you tell them why, that you, as a patient, you can activate your own relaxation response with whatever tool works the best for you. And by activating your relaxation response, you can soften your muscle tension and reduce pain. If you tell them why, the reasoning, so much more likely to do it, right? As opposed to like, you know, you should really exercise. Like that's not actually that helpful. And having been told that, when, you're, when you are exhausted and every muscle in your body hurts, like think about the last time you had the flu. If somebody came up to you and like, you know what, you should really just exercise, how about a brisk walk? Like, screw you, like that just does not come, it doesn't, it's not received well, right? But if you can explain why and explain that you can implement it in incremental steps, it will really change. Patients will do it. So yoga has shown some good data for fibromyalgia. Um, I always, you know, I'll talk more specifically about implementation in the afternoon, but I always warn people, like, don't do the core power hot yoga. If it has any of those things in the name, like, that's not going to be a, a fibro-friendly yoga. But gentle, restorative, you know, that, those, those can be really, really helpful. Stretching, even just simple muscle stretching has been shown to be helpful in fibromyalgia. Health coaching, really helpful. We'll talk more about this in the afternoon, but helping people with the implementation component of these things. Easing into fibromyalgia exercise, and in case you guys will not be in the afternoon session, the point, the point here's how you can get your fibromyalgia patients to actually exercise. The key is to not use the word exercise. Toss that out of your therapeutic movement. Easier sell. I call, I call exercise the hardest sell in medicine. Like I, it's very hard to convince a fibromyalgia patient to exercise. Gentle movement therapy that you can implement in incremental steps, a lot easier. So we've talked about muscle tension. That's really important. What is all that muscle tension generating? Well, it generates irritable muscles that are really prone to knotting up. And myofascial trigger points are really just knotted muscles. And that knot is painful. And Dr. Frickton talked more about kind of the you know, pathology and the anatomy. It's something that if you can address trigger points, it really can make a huge difference. But of course, it takes some time, and this is the hard part in kind of the current state of medicine these days is we don't have a lot of time to really examine um, our patients to really do a good trigger point exam and then, and then maybe treat them. But there are ways that patients can treat their own trigger points, and that, I think, is something that can be really uh, easily implemented into actual medical care. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about different ways that we can address these trigger points. And I'm not gonna go into this because Dr. Frickton covered it. Um, but I will say, 
I think pretty much 100% of doctors or anybody that works in the healthcare, anybody that's like doing the, you know, the computing, um, we, have, we have this trigger point in our trapezius. Like you probably all have that right there, you know, on your dominant side. And if you do more computing or you're sitting in a weird way, you know, they don't have a table at the conference, you're kind of leaning over your laptop and it just, it can irritate that, right? So imagine that, but in like almost every muscle in your body, there's, there's kind of fibromyalgia. And then add a little flavor of having the flu on top of that, you've got it, you understand it now. So myofascial trigger points, very common in fibromyalgia. One study showed an average of 12 trigger points um, in a fibromyalgia patient compared to healthy controls having, you know, zero to one, usually that's the one. Um, and as I said earlier, trigger point injections not only relieved the regional muscle symptoms in some of these trigger point studies, but also reduced global pain sensitivity. So I would argue that if fibromyalgia is purely a central phenomenon, why does it help reduce central pain amplification by injecting in the muscles and the trigger points, right? There's, you have to look at both, and it's a really incomplete view to just look at the central pain sensitivity. So I'll tell you, I'll stop here for a moment and say that what really kind of saved my life and my medical career, um, because I thought I was going to have to go on disability. I mean, you don't, there's, when you're diagnosed with fibromyalgia and your doctors have little to offer you and you don't know what to do, your life feels pretty much over. I mean, I was in my mid-20s and it was kind of like, okay, I'm done. Um, so I took a year off, tried an astonishing amount of both conventional and alternative treatments, some unspeakable treatments, like if you've ever had a colonic, you will understand the desperation that fibromyalgia patients experience. They will try anything, right? And I tried everything. But what I ultimately found, what finally helped me, was a manual therapy called myofascial release. And I'll talk more specifically about what that is. Um, but it's something that really was, it was the first time that I had even a, a hint of a reduction of pain. And after about two years of searching. I mean, really, nothing helped. So I have been, you know, because of my personal experience, I've been a huge proponent of myofascial release for the past 20 years. But uh, conveniently, the science has caught up with me, and there is actually some data. You don't have to just take my, you know, anecdotal N of one experience. Um, we have looked at uh, a lot of different manual therapies for fibromyalgia because you know, our muscles hurt. So what do people do when their muscles hurt? They want to get a massage. So most people with fibromyalgia have tried massage. Unfortunately, Swedish massage, what we think of as the typical massage, you know, the kneading or rubbing, um, kind of gentle strokes, that actually is not well tolerated by most fibromyalgia patients. And interestingly, in this study that looked at, um, it was a systematic review that looked at six different techniques in fibromyalgia, they found that all techniques except Swedish massage showed some benefit, but myofascial release showed the best evidence. And I will say that this is what I have seen clinically over and over and over again. Myofascial release is something that physical therapists can do, occupational therapists can do, and if it's done by them, insurance will reimburse, not if it's done by a massage therapist. So that's... So what is this myofascial release? 
I guess before I go into it, I wonder, has anybody, does anybody use myofascial release or recommend it? <clears throat> All right, a few hands. <clears throat> so it is, it's not massage. It's really important to understand it's not massage. It's really more slow manual traction or assisted stretching. So what the therapist does is, in this example, uh, this hand on the shoulder is kind of pushing away from the therapist, and then under the occipital region there is pushing, pulling towards them. So there's this sort of um, really gentle, really slow stretching that goes on for three to five minutes. It's a really long time. And it takes that long for the tissue to really unlock. So if you just start, if you think about the normal stretching, right, like people stretch in maybe 30 seconds, it's actually not long enough to really get a deep myofascial stretch. It's only at that three minute mark where the fibroblasts of the fascia start to soften their grip. And I think the one, the one um, challenging component of trying to implement or include myofascial release in a treatment protocol is that for whatever reason, even people that know about myofascial pain they only really focus on the myo part. Like nobody really talks about the fascial part. And anybody that is a, a body worker, a manual therapist, physical therapy, knows that the fascia actually is a really big player. And guess what? The fascia is exquisitely pain sensitive. Studies in the 30s uh, showed that it was as sensitive as our skin. So it's like our internal skin. The skin around the muscles penetrates through the muscles. It has a huge amount of nociceptors. And in fibromyalgia, it's really locked up. So if you think about myofascial release as trying to gently soften this and um, kind of untangle the fibroblasts that are tightening together. And remember I said earlier that the sympathetic nervous system is really extremely active in fibromyalgia. Guess what the sympathetic nervous system does? It helps you to prepare to fight or flee and to do that, you tense your muscles. And as part of that, actually, we're learning that the fascia activates. And if you think about, think about people that, I don't know if you guys heard a few years ago, there was a mom that fought off a mountain lion, like in Colorado, was attacking her kid, and she went out in the backyard and like fought off this 300-pound mountain lion. And everybody, and she's a little petite woman, and everybody was like, well, how did she do that? Like, how do you get, what gives us this intense, strength in a time of life-threatening emergency. It's actually our fascia, which has been shown in some interesting German studies to contract in response to signals from the sympathetic nervous system. So, I digress a bit there, but um, if you can address this fascial tension, it really helps with pain. I'm telling you, this was the one thing that helped me. Now, there's other things that I've learned since then, and there are other things that are important to address, sleep, nutrition, exercise, posture, stress levels, um, I mean, central sensitization, all those are also important. But it, I think we have this blind spot where we're not really seeing the myofascial component. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that if you leave today with any, anything that you remember, it is uh, that myofascial release is good for fibromyalgia. But you don't have to take my word for it. There's been some studies looking at it. 
Um, most of these studies have been done in Spain, and I don't know if any of you know, there's somebody in the Spanish royal family that has fibromyalgia. So they, the government funds huge amounts of really lovely fibromyalgia studies. So if you're ever wondering why Spain produces so many high quality studies, because, you know, pay us to know somebody in the royal family. Um, also Lady Gaga has fibromyalgia, so my idea to translate that into the American um, research world is to get Lady Gaga to fund a fibromyalgia research institute. So if anybody here knows Lady Gaga, send her my way. Seriously. So, this study in Spain looked at 20 weeks of myofascial release therapy compared to sham ultrasound. It found significant improvement in pain and tender points. It actually also showed some, they've done other studies that have shown some improvement in fatigue and other fibromyalgia symptoms. But here's what's really amazing, like drop the mic amazing, is, oops. <laughs> uh, the pain benefits persisted so they did 20 weeks of myofascial release, and then they checked them a month later and six months later. The pain reduction persisted at one month post-intervention, and then at six months post-intervention. And of course, it wasn't as intense that it had been initially. But can you imagine if there was a drug study that did this, if you could do 20 weeks of a medication and then stop it and you had prolonged pain reduction? Wouldn't that be like front page news? But because it's myofascial release, and because it's published in, you know, an alternative medicine journal, it's, I mean, nobody's, nobody's even heard of it. And I'm, I'm kind of mystified. Like, I, I don't, we're looking for things that can help fibromyalgia, and here's something that really helps, and it's proven, and it's not that expensive. I mean, it's a lot, it's probably 20 weeks of myofascial release, probably cheaper than an MRI, so I don't know. You can also do myofascial release on yourself. And so this is an example. It's sort of using gravity to assist in the stretch. Um, you can also use tools like the foam roller. Um, the key is really doing a prolonged supported stretch. And you don't want to be straining your body to get into this stretch. So um, one way to do it is to kind of prop your body up on pillows or uh, a really common thing I have my patients do is the T-stretch. So I have them roll up a pillow, they lay on it. We tend to have a lot of tension. We're very forward. Um, most people with fibromyalgia were pretty tight in here. Um, so I just have them lay on this rolled up um, towel or like on a foam roller, lay there with their arms open for three to five minutes. That's it. And at about the three minute mark, you'll start to feel this softening. And here's the crazy part. It actually can change your posture. It can change how your body looks. So the myofascial release therapist that I saw um, in Boston who really gave me my life back, she was a physical therapist and she took before and after pictures. So um, I really want to share them with people, but my husband was like ixnay on the, cause I'm like in my underwear and it's not like good underwear. It was just, so anyway, I won't share the pictures with you, but I will give you like a demonstration. So my first, the first picture, I was kind of like this, you know. And I didn't know that I was standing that way. And I had so much pain in my neck, in the back of my neck, and in my low back. But I didn't, I mean, that's just how I stood, right? So then I did about two months of twice a week myofascial release with her. And then she took another picture. And in that 
my shoulders are back, my head is above my shoulder. I'm smiling, that's the other difference. There's like frowny and then smiling. I'm wearing nicer underwear, which may or may not be related, I don't know. Um, but it, it actually changed how my body looked. And I was like, oh, like I didn't know you could do that. But you can, because our fascia is what actually helps us to, um, you know, it's kind of like our, the skeleton around our muscles. It's what helps us to have a specific posture. So anyway, it is modifiable. And I found that if people do some self-myofascial release every, every night, just the T-stretch, I found that that is enough, in fibromyalgia at least, to give people some pain reduction. And then people start to realize, like, oh, this isn't that hard. And guess what's also happening when you're laying there thinking about nothing? You might be, like, doing some deep breathing. Maybe you're activating your relaxation response. Maybe it's kind of part of that self-care implementation. Um, and it's, it takes five minutes. So, successful fibromyalgia treatment involves both addressing central sensitization. Medications absolutely can be helpful there. But as I and other presenters have mentioned, the medications are mildly effective at best, somewhat disappointing. Um, this is why I think so many fibromyalgia patients ended up on opioids. It's because there weren't other options, you know? We really don't have a lot of treatment tools available in our, our toolbox for fibromyalgia. You know, we've got the SNRIs, the anticonvulsants. We tell people to exercise. Uh, yeah, okay, that's, that's, pretty much, that's pretty much it. But there is so much more. If we help people activate their own relaxation response, soften their muscle tension, if we help people to address their own myofascial trigger points and myofascial tension and pain, or do it with a provider, so trigger point injections absolutely can be helpful, particularly if things are really flared up in an area, or myofascial release therapy done by a physical therapist or a massage therapist, or done by a patient on themselves. This, if you address each component of the chain reaction, you're gonna get a lot more benefit and the other thing I really liked that Dr. Glick said in his lecture is, you know, if the problem is in the periphery, if the problem is at the other end of the room, but I don't address it till it comes to me, by the time it's amplified so much that it's coming to me, you're, re you're really not gonna get as much benefit. So if you think about a chain reaction, it makes so much sense to start earlier in the process, and then you're gonna get a lot more downstream benefit rather than waiting until everything is all ramped up and amplified and angry and the nervous system has gone you know, haywire and every signal is magnified times 20. That's why I think our treatments are somewhat disappointing if you're just waiting until it's a central pain amplification issue. You don't, it's kind of a drop in the bucket. You know? If you can prevent that or intervene earlier, so much more effective. So, shameless plug for my book, I, I have been disappointed by the, both in alternative and conventional medicine. I feel like there is a real lack of understanding um, among providers about what's actually happening in the body in fibromyalgia. Um, and I, you know, I, I think that recognizing that providers don't have a lot of time. They're not gonna have time to search through and find that myofascial release article that I read. 
I tried to write a guide that could be used for both patients to help themselves and also providers. So the end of this book has about five pages sort of condensed with references, um, just kind of boom, 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 bullet points, how to treat fibromyalgia. And I will tell you that if you can help people understand what's going on in their body, improve their sleep quality, address inflammation, address endocrine issues, address their muscle tension, their myofascial trigger points, work on their relaxation response. If you can do that, you might not even need any of the medications to treat central pain amplification. You might, and they might still be there, but this is a guide. I wanted to help people to try and figure out how to intervene earlier in the process. Um, and that's, that's really all I, all I have for this morning. Do you wanna answer some questions? Yeah. Thank you. Question? Do you mean what started the chain reaction? So uh, my theory is that a trauma, motor vehicle accident, combat, emotional trauma, the studies have shown that people within six months of a car accident, particularly that involves whiplash, are likely to develop fibromyalgia. For me, it was actually a weightlifting injury in my neck. So I had been, hold on, I'll get there, I promise I'll get there. So uh, I had been in medical school doing weightlifting and then I felt something kind of pop in my neck and it was uh, within a few weeks that I started noticing a lot of intense front of my neck pain and then it spread to the back of my neck and then it spread to my whole body and then I developed sleep disruption and then kind of the whole cascade. So my theory, is that there's some uh, trigger in the hypothalamus that uh, trauma kind of flips a switch and activates that sympathetic nervous system, which is normal, but then in fibromyalgia, maybe because of genetic predisposition, the switch doesn't unlock. And so you're kind of stuck in this ongoing sympathetic drive. Go ahead. So you bring up a very good point. There, are some, there is some evidence for immune abnormalities in fibromyalgia for maybe reactivation of infections. But what we don't understand, and part of why I can't give you a very you know, concrete answer is because we, we don't really understand. We don't quite know what is that trigger, what is the genesis. Is it a virus? Is it Lyme disease? Is it different for each person? And this is where people start talking about subsets. You know, are there different types of fibromyalgia? What I would say is there's a lot of different ways to trigger that prolonged sympathetic nervous system activation. There's a lot of routes to that, but once it's activated, the response is very similar in every fibromyalgia patient. So the route they get there might be a neck injury, might be a severe um, emotional trauma. I had a patient that developed it after breast cancer and she's recovering from breast cancer and her husband leaves her while she's in the hospital. She developed fibromyalgia from the, emo from the trauma of that experience. So it could be a trauma, could be an injury. It's possible it could be an infection. It's possible that that excess sympathetic nervous system uh, stimulation alters our immune system so that we can't fight viruses as well, and so they get reactivated. Trigger is switched. 
So, yeah, I mean, I am your classic <laughs> demographic. Um, young, middle-aged women are the biggest. We're learning more that there's more and more men being diagnosed with fibromyalgia. We used to think it was pretty much exclusively women. Now we're learning that there is um, maybe 10 to 20% um, male. Uh, there is a genetic predisposition. There's not like a gene that gives you the predisposition, but family members of somebody with fibromyalgia are eight times more likely to develop it themselves. So there is some kind of predisposition that then, it's almost like the cancer theory. You know, there's a predisposition and then there's that triggering event. And so I think about that with fibromyalgia. So it's a really, I see that too. So I think that what happens is that if somebody's been dealing with fibromyalgia for 20 years, the pathways in the, in the brain and the, the fascial, the myofascial dysfunction we're dealing with is just that much greater. And so those folks tend to take more time. Um, I still see myofascial release work for them, but they might not see benefit, you know, they might have to do a few months of it. I also think the thing to keep in mind is that most fibromyalgia patients are completely traumatized by their prior medical experience. Like doctors, I mean, not you guys, because you're here and you're listening to this, but the average healthcare provider doesn't know how to deal with fibromyalgia and might say um, pretty negative things. I mean, I, I, my patients relay horrible things that they have heard. So I think that part of what we have to overcome is kind of say, okay, I understand that your prior experiences were negative. I'm so sorry that that has been your experience. This is, it's gonna be different working with me, but in order to kind of, that's kind of the 80-20 rule, right? You have to figure out some way that they can engage with you and if we're just trying to convince them like take this exercise this it has to be something where you're you're sort of acknowledging the trauma but also trying to help guide towards maybe a different way of looking at it but it's uh, like yeah maybe good. i can add yeah. to that we really work on a sort of multiple dimensional process over six months to a year to try to modify the reaction to the environment to some extent both emotionally as well as physically as well as their body functions, myofascial release, posture, repetitive strain. And so patients can't just flick a switch and get better. This is where realistic expectations is critically important. Realize the 80-20 rule is important. They need to understand that. They need to progress through baby steps every week to make the changes they need. And so that can be supported by a telehealth coach as well as myofascial release therapy and some treatments that are involved within the clinic. But it's a process that occurs and it's not a quick switch, particularly with the patients who have had years and years of chronic pain. Uh, it's a process they have to appreciate. Yeah, and that kind of addresses what I was going to say, is that um, I don't know if it's the anxiety and the depression that trigger, can it trigger fibro? And also, too, oh, thank you. And also, too, like she had mentioned, there seems to be a lot of um, people who've had it for a while, like my mother-in-law, for example. Does, there's a lot of apathy. She doesn't want to do anything. She, um, so I feel like 
the behavioral counseling, things like that, does that seem to go well with that? And then um, if you if you treat the underlying anxiety and depression, does that seem to have better outcomes? Like what do you, what do you notice and which medicines do you prefer with that? So the first part of your question, I do not feel that anxiety or depression trigger fibromyalgia. I would say it's more the other way around, that dealing with fibromyalgia, dealing with chronic pain is depressing and absolutely has, causes changes in the brain that manifest as depression or manifest as anxiety. Certainly there can be, you know, people might have underlying or predisposing mental illness, but I think it's really important to differentiate between, um, you know, does anxiety or depression cause fibromyalgia or is anxiety and depression really common in fibromyalgia because of how hard it is to deal with it and because of the sort of um, uh, lack of, I mean, I went through a, a severe depression when I was, if you were diagnosed with fibromyalgia and like nobody had anything to help you with and your life as you knew it was over, maybe a little kind of depressing, right? So what I find is that it is helpful to treat depression the same, I mean, nothing, no different than other, um, you know, treating run-of-the-mill depression or anxiety. Um, but what I try to express to people is you're in the middle of a, of a hole and uh, antidepressant is a rope and it can help you pull out so that you can do those things for yourself, do the self-management. Because if somebody is deeply depressed or apathetic, they're, I mean, they're not gonna pick up the phone when the coach calls them, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, duloxetine is, is good because it has you know, the pain relieving component, but I also just use SSRIs and, other, um, and some nutritional stuff. Um, so just depression as treating as, as normal. No different. We're no different. <laughs> I, I thought it was more involved than that. I thought it had a lot to do with the anxiety and depression. So maybe that's some of the misnomers that help that. That is the mis. And, and if you come to a fibromyalgia patient and say, like, helpfully, my doctor in Boston said to me, like, well, maybe you're just depressed. Like, that's very different than saying, I'm recognizing that you seem depressed, and that's going to make it much harder for you to deal with your current state and to do those things that help you. So it's just a change in. Freezing yeah. makes a big difference, right? Because frequently people with fibromyalgia and even chronic pain, um, they're worried that the physician, the provider, is not going to acknowledge that it's a physical problem. They think it's in your head. They think it's an imagine it's related to anxiety, depression, and by by tying those together too much, they get they get misled into thinking that you don't really believe that they have a physical problem. We have to make sure the language that we use with patients conveys the appropriateness of the fact that it's a physical problem, but it's amplified by a variety of different factors that in many ways are a consequence of the persistent pain. The physical problem is still the key issue that they need to understand, and you need to acknowledge the fact that they have that. In terms of the self-care, um, do you have a resource that you use to show patients some of the different um, self-stretching techniques? Um, and are you also combining theracanes for a trigger point? Yeah, did you see my picture? There was a theracane in there, so self-treatment for uh, trigger points. So the afternoon session, we'll talk all about, um, there are some online tools for kind of the self-management, and we'll talk a lot more about kind of the implementation and the tools that we use. Um, as far as myofascial release, there are some self-care courses. Um, and if you want to find a myofascial release therapist, 
uh, mfrtherapist.com is where to go. And on there, they have some uh, links to self-care, like video, online video programs. And I'll talk. I'll talk mfrtherapist.com. And I'll talk this afternoon a little bit about an NIH-funded study that we did developing these online resources that are coupled with telehealth coaching to help a patient really understand what are the critical elements. And what it does is, is I help with a risk assessment identify specifically in their case what are the risk factors that are driving chronic pain over time, and then it presents personalized lessons for them that are kind of micro-learning lessons that are online five to 10 minutes say, okay, here's the problem, here's why it's contributing to your pain condition, and here's what you do about it. And then that's supported by the provider, the health professional in the office, as well as coaches over the phone as needed, behavioral psychologists, physical therapists, myofascial release. So it's an integrated program, but it helps the patient kind of move forward and identify specifically their issues and how to basically change it. So come back this afternoon. That is the afternoon session. I know a lot of people are flying, but yeah. so I think time for one more question. Will your oh. slides be available later? Yeah, I think they're available on the, the fancy on the app. app thing. Yeah. Just one more question. Yes. Uh, yeah, going back to the depression and the fibromyalgia, uh, the pain. Yeah. In general, uh, in our practice, we found out that the SSR. Uh, reduce the threshold of the pain because they cover the pain uh, ending. So um, going back to which is come first, the egg or the mm -hmm. chicken, they go back together. And uh, most of our doctors, uh, I work for in the VA, so most of our patients have both. Yes, I think so. Both. They will be on antidepressant, and they will be on several antidepressants, and they will be on pain. But the approach you're taking uh, very, very uh, important, and I'll take it back. Yes, and I'll thank try you. To thank you all for coming, thank and thank you for um, hopefully taking taking a little bit of this back to your own practice. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah.